Welcome to the new school. What we wanted to do was talk about the concept of authenticity and vulnerability in an industry that has typically been super buttoned up, super professional, and a little bit old school. Hello, and welcome to episode number 20 of the New School Video Podcast. My name is Candace Carlton, and I'm the head of advisor education at FICOM Partners. In this episode, we have our first Canadian guest based out of Vancouver, Canada. We have Mark Baker, who's the VP of Marketing, and Mike Wolkenshaw, the CEO of Tamaya Capital. So Tamaya Capital is an alternative to venture financing for SaaS company founders. So I thought what was really interesting about this episode is they really shared in depth about how they tried to find a better way to get founders funding, essentially to grow their business without giving a, a whole bunch of equity, how they've grown year over year and how they've done that with a very lean team in terms of applying an experimentation mindset and giving everyone the autonomy to create efficiencies through marketing experiments. I think that was phenomenal. They also have a really interesting insight in terms of how they solved for remote work across generations within the firms. And they talk also a lot about how private credit has now become more liquid. So there's more talk around it, more access for advisors to invest in and to look at it for their clients. I think you're really going to dig this episode. They really represent everything new school. So this is a really exciting new school episode for us for a number of reasons. I think the first one is the first time we've had Canadians on the show. So welcome, Mark and Mike. It's really exciting to be here. Thank you for representing. Happy to. We'll do our best. Yeah, we'll, do the best. we'll be polite. The second reason it's really good is actually Mark is a personal friend of mine. Him and I are both alt MBA alumni, and I know that there's a lot of them out there. So hello, part of the Seth Godin tribe, which is really exciting. And then the third reason is Tamaya Capital. You guys are doing such interesting new stuff in the space, and I've been privy to uh a behind the scenes version of it because Mark and I meet as part of the Alt MBA alumni group. And he always is telling me about the stuff that you're doing. But Mike, I'd love for you to tell us about Tamaya Capital and why it's different. Because from what I understand, you identify a really underserved asset class and you've been able to create funding for entrepreneurs, primarily SaaS founders, SaaS company founders, in a way that wasn't previously available. Yeah, thank you, Candice. Um, Tamaya Capital started about six years ago and uh, its genesis was, we just thought that uh, recurring revenue software companies uh, were a heck of a lot less risky than people were giving them credit for. And so those companies were out in the market raising equity dollars from angel investors and venture capital people and giving up large percentages of their company for that capital, even though those companies are really, really stable, reliable companies. They have 
annual contracts. I mean, we all use their products. We, they bill on our credit cards every single month. And, and really, those companies, when you look at them in the, in, the, in the bell curve of risk across companies, those companies are really not risky at all. So they ought to be able to access debt to grow their company at an earlier stage than they generally had been able to. But the normal banking system would look at a software company and say, well, how, mu- you know, how many assets do you have that I can collect if you go bankrupt? And they say, you know, we don't. We don't really have anything. All of our, We don't even have any servers anymore because we use Amazon Web Services. And, and so really, there's just a couple of computers on our desks. And so banks won't give them loans. So they're forced to go back and get equity, equity, equity. Well, we came along and said, well, you know what? We think we can lend money to those companies and help them grow their businesses at rates that are both reasonable for them and less than they're currently paying their venture capital players, but rates that which investors are perfectly happy to receive those kinds of returns. And in our market, that's sort of 15 to 20% annualized interest rates. And so we, we started accessing that market um, and, and really providing that yield on the way through to our, our investor group. Um, but what we quickly noticed early on was that technology was an important aspect of our business. Um, it wasn't the end game, but it was a tool that was incredibly important for us to be able to do these loans cost effectively across North America and to find the best candidates as easily and as efficiently as possible. So we brought very early on, brought technology in, in the right amount, not overly we didn't overly build out our platform. We tried to build it uh, at the right scale at the right time to provide the kinds of efficiencies that we need while not eliminating humans from, from the decision-making process. I mean, it just sounds like the digital advisor of today. I think, you know, when we were having our prep conversations, what I was so struck by was the parallels between what you had been talking about of automation, systems, process, technology being really important but it being complementary to the people component. And what I loved about what you just said, and I'd love for you to talk more about it. And Mark, I know there's a whole system that's been built that you guys have built on how you rate potential uh, borrowers Mm -hmm. and what that looks like. But what I love about what you said, and it's something we practice and it's something we coach all of our advisors on is, you didn't have this idea, spend a ton of money upfront and then build it soup to nuts and then try and market it. But you really took an approach of building a little, testing, growing, getting the revenue from it, learning, and then continuing to evolve, evolve it. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it, it, I think it's important to differentiate. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, companies now uh, organizations, platforms in our space. And some of them, it would appear that the platform itself is the goal. And, you know, we just don't think that makes any sense. What we believe is that return, yield, IRR to end investors is the goal. That's the only thing that matters. How you get there um, is really up to you to try and figure out how best to do that. And we find that technology um, is a tool, but it's not the only tool we use. And, and so in the early days, 
uh, when we were small and uh, we didn't have a lot of resources, um, we very early on started saying, well, what are the things that routinely happen in the sourcing, the originating and the underwriting, and then the management of this loan basket? What are the things that are routine that are going on month to month that are not, they, they provide binary answers, they're yes, no answers. What are those things? And can we automate those things? And so we uh, very quickly dug into all the tools that are on the marketplace and built a few internal tools. And we automated the stuff that was just really easy and um, didn't, didn't require any human cognitive activity to try and figure out if there was subtleties to it. And we eliminated those and pushed those all off the table and got all those automated. But we left the stuff um, that was really human cognitive based and where the human mind still provides an advantage over the analysis of an investment. And really in the early days, there was only so many things we could do. So we just took the very, very top of the funnel and knocked those things off the table and got them dealt with. And then as we scaled, you know, we invested in another batch of tools to do the next batch of things. And, um, and then now we are, you know, six years on, we've automated, say, 60% of the evaluation processes that we use. Um, and we, we, we believe that fundamentally has two advantages. One, it finds better companies for us to invest in. And two, it, it's a cheaper, cheaper way for us to operate, which allows us to do smaller loans that others can't do and gets better yield for our investors. So there's really two things to it. And then that last 40%, some of those will still be automated, but there will always be stuff in there that is going to be left to the human brain to figure out. And, you know, one classic example would be um, if we're on the fully automated side, what was your revenue growth year over year? That's a percentage calculation. What was your gross margin? Um, you know, numbers and calculations and very simple stuff can all be automated, but the quality of the management team is something that we're probably always going to evaluate by as as humans, and that's going to be left to the management to the group team. The overall evaluation based on a credit score, which is developed by the system, but then the other qualitative factors that we look at in a deal, put that together, and then make an investment committee decision. Those are still human things that will probably always be there. Yeah, yeah, Mike. Uh, just on that, in addition to. Um, finding those identifiers early on, it was also identifying um, what is the least amount of information we need at the front. So rather than being intensive right away and asking entrepreneurs to provide an entire data room for us, it was also identifying um, what are our critical points that we need to say yes or no right away so we're not wasting anyone's time. Yeah. And entrepreneurs really appreciate that, actually. That's one of the big parts of our system that works well is we're going to take 15 minutes of your time and we're going to give you an answer as to whether you're going to move through to the next phase or not. And uh, that is that resonates well with entrepreneurs because they, they, they're busy. You know, and they yeah, and it was, it was evolutionary as well. Like it, it wasn't obvious on day one. It took us a while to, to identify those spots. Uh, and that changes per company, per type of company we look at. Like specifically SaaS, true SaaS is, um, it, it's, it might seem easy and transparent from the surface if you don't know SaaS, but as you dig in, uh, you can identify those things. And then not all companies are pure SaaS. So they might say they are, but they're not. And so we've identified what we call edge cases of companies that have a component of SaaS 
and other types of components, whether it be hardware or human services, or uh, maybe it's a more human intensive for onboarding uh, a certain type of company to use their software. I love how we're talking about the fact that really Tamaya was built on identifying an opportunity in the market, right? And then really giving these SaaS founders the ability to grow their firms without giving away a bunch of equity. I love how we're talking about this automation and technology, but then also having the human component in it, right? In the foundation of how you run your company. Mark, what I really have appreciated in all our conversations is your approach to marketing experiments of iterating, learning. And I know, Mike, from our conversations that it's very much part of Tamaya capital culture. But Mark, can you give us that that context? When we say marketing experiment or an experiment in this, right, what are we actually talking about from, from your point of view? And what is the mindset that you go in with when you're looking at something? Sure. So... Um, a lot of marketing these days, especially digital, digital marketing and, and uh, people who, who um, look into it as a, a way to grow their business will think, okay, well, there's a lot of different ways we can do this. Uh, what, what is something that's going to tell us? And so uh, we, we have this term called growth hackers or growth marketers, and they lean on data significantly. And that, that is a good thing to give you leading indicators. And so it's, it's good to identify early on what sort of channels or what sort of uh, campaigns will, will meet the market you're trying to serve. Uh, however, just like Mike explained earlier, uh, we're taking a qualitative and quantitative approach. So it's one thing to look at Google Analytics and see what's doing right. It's another thing for an entrepreneur to tell you what resonated. And so um, our approach has been that. Uh, we've tried a lot of different tactics and seen things that have worked, but we're always listening. So uh, I try, even though I'm in the marketing space, um, I'm trying to be on calls with our sales guys, with our uh, head of origination, um, to listen in to what the entrepreneurs um, feelings and uh, thoughts and uh, things that drive them to a purchase decision. And that might change during uh, the origination process. So when an entrepreneur first comes to us, they might just be, they might off the top of their head, just think, how much capital can I get? But once you're in due diligence, that might change uh, because suddenly they're thinking about pitching to their board, talking to their CFO, or maybe they don't, they're not big enough for a CFO, so they're talking to their contract CFO, their hired out firm. And so listening to that conversation progress from that first 15-minute phone call, then to getting legals in front of them, uh, we build our messaging so that uh, we can align with the entrepreneur with our content and with our strategy for their first intention. They're like, oh, how much capital can I get? Or something similar to that. But then also um, what resonates with them when they actually sign with us, when they start working with us on a monthly basis and they're using our capital, they're deploying our capital. 
because they're telling, you're telling the story of a new company, right? A new offering. So how to tell that story in a marketplace where you potentially don't have anything to copy? Yeah. So in in the traditional sense, and in a lot of ways, there's two things that we're kind of fighting against. One is that uh, VC or equity, for some reason, is significantly romanticized. Uh, so when you land a big VC round, you get the TechCrunch article. Um, and there's this buzz. Um, but the day after the TechCrunch article, you go have to run your business. And you've just given away 20% of your company. And then on the other side of, of, of it, it's kind of the consumer mentality of, oh, debt is bad. But there's always a return, right? That either um, the credit card is getting a return, the alternative lender is getting a return, angel investors are getting a return, the VCs are getting a return. Well, what about the founder, right? Where's where's that? Where's the founder's return? And so uh, it, it is a little bit tricky to find the right messaging that um, doesn't say, you know, debt is bad. It doesn't say, um, you know, never talk to equity providers. You know, there's the right place and time uh, for each type of capital. And we are trying to align our capital with entrepreneurs who are looking to specifically grow their business to uh, invest into sales and marketing so they can get a return on our capital, which is greater than uh, what we're expecting in a debt repayment. So let me, if I could build on that for one, one second, I think one of the one of the important points to make for the viewers uh, is the concept, though, of this whole marketing platform as one of the innovations. Um, venture capital. So there's really, you know, go back 20 years, there were really sort of two ways that somebody like this might get money. They would go to a bank. Uh, and if they were of sufficient quality size scale, they would get it. But banks have banks had branches in every community across the country. And so there's a lot of expense associated with that. And so as a result, you know, the minimum loan they were going to give, you know, in this particular sector might be like a $20 million loan to a $50 million company or something. So um, there was sort of that, or they would go, as Mark said, to the venture capital market. But the venture capital market's origination strategy was, you know, get to know all the lawyers, bankers, and accountants around in all of the key cities that they might do a deal in. So Boston, New York, LA, San Francisco, Chicago. And and then if some entrepreneur happened to talk to the right lawyer, they would get an introduction to the right VC, and then the VC would do the deal. And that's how it would work. And Software companies themselves innovated this online marketing, selling to companies across the world using tools like, first of all, Google and now LinkedIn and all the other tools that they use through to sell because their product sale is like 100 bucks a month, 75 bucks a month. They can't afford to get on a plane and go visit their customer. So they need to find a way, they needed to find a way to market and get people to buy their product online. Uh, for a very, very low cost. And there, there's no secret to the fact that we basically have borrowed that marketing strategy. And Mark has taken that marketing strategy and applied it into the lending world in a way that has proven very, very attractive because it is, finds great candidates and it does it at a very, very low cost. And, and those marketing tools 
I mean, when you think about it at the end of the day, we are selling or offering capital to companies, which is not a product that's hard to sell in a lot of cases. It's, it's much harder to sell something uh, and add a tool that a software company might be, want, be wanting to you to buy to bolt onto your suite of tools and figure out if it's going to add value or not. Everybody knows what the value of capital is to their business. So, so it's a very compelling offering. And uh, we do a lot of run a lot of different A/B testing to try and figure out different messages that resonate. So sometimes it might be, you know, keep more of your company. Sometimes it might be buy out old shareholders. Sometimes it might be, you know, you want to acquire another company. Come talk to us. Um, there's a bunch of different sort of subtle messages in there, but it all falls under an umbrella that's a really attractive product. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. So let's just step back a little bit because I know we had shared you've had exponential growth year after year. It's a new offering. You're innovating in the markets place where I'd love to get to eventually is how now this is more accessible for even advisors, right, to offer their clients because the liquidity is now there in a way that it had historically been. But before we get that, can you talk a little bit more about this people component? your internal culture, and how you've really been able to stay um, innovative, continue to iterate and have such exponential growth. You know, what is that, you know, a lot of, you know, when I speak to advisors, I recently did a talk on innovation. And what we typically find is the CEO is usually the person who has a big vision, they want to innovate, they want to expand. And they feel like because financial services has been such a traditionally conservative industry, there are a lot of regulations around it and process all these things that they find it challenging to get their team into that headspace. And also because they think of innovation as like like inventing the new iPhone. But from what I understand, your whole team really has that mindset and is, it works in that space. Can you talk about that? Maybe we can talk about the Gen X millennial relationships too. That's a big part of any company in this space today, right, Mark? <laughs> Every day. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, what we have a relatively small team for the amount of assets under management, and um, one thing we've done is hire people who um, not only you know, can evaluate whether an investment is a good deal or not. They also are capable of building system. And so the same person who is evaluating deals is constantly looking at the system that they're working in and saying, what can I automate? What can I automate? What can I automate? So we've pushed, we don't have like a separate IT department that says, oh, let's automate this. Let's automate that. The people themselves are the people who are saying, okay, well, you know what? This process is costing me a lot of time on a monthly basis. What can we do? And then we all sit down and we figure out, well, what's the tools that we can use to automate that process and then put some automation on it. So pushing automation down to the decision for automation down to the level of the people who are actually doing the work is absolutely critical and, you know, practically fundamentally required given the size of the scales that we're, the size of the organization that we're dealing with. Um, the second thing, and this is no different than a lot of companies I'm assuming right now, is uh, remote, you know, flexible, remote everything. So being able to work from home while you're moving, such as markets, or being able to being able to um, 
uh, collaborate effectively with all the tools we need. And so we spent a lot of money on making sure we have all the collaboration tools we need across the entire border. Even old guys like me are, you know, where I'm a big fan of using all of the various different tools that we have now, having come away from the old Microsoft architectures. Um, so making sure that that all works, but, but the beauty of it is, is that software tools have evolved to the point where you don't need to be a big company to get access to some really advanced stuff. And um, we, along with others, are benefiting greatly from that by being able to do that. So, so I guess to summarize, the two things. One is push it all down to the people who are actually doing the work and give them both the skill sets and the opportunity to be able to improve that system that they're living every single day. And two, give everybody the broad-based distributed tools so that they can operate from home, they can operate on weekends, they can operate on days, we can operate across the continent, um, all of those things effectively um, and collaboratively. So, Mike, let me just add some practicality to this, because I think um, the culture and the engagement of people um, is as important as the tool. So um, back before COVID, where everyone is forced to work from home, um, Tamaya looked at our organization and we did identify areas where we could add tools. But even with the right tools, um, you know, Mike, uh, I apologize in advance, but, you know, it took some pushing, it took some coercing to, to get you to use the tool uh, effectively and, and, and everyone for that matter. So I'll give you a quick example. You can easily get everyone else, get everyone on Zoom. But if you have three or four people in a boardroom and three or four people on Zoom, you can easily have a distraction in the room and the room can kind of take off with the meeting. And so before COVID, when that was possible, we made a decision that when we're having a meeting where there's a few people remote, that means everyone should act as if they were remote. Mm, so even if we were in the yeah. same office and could go to the same boardroom, we all each went to our own individual computers because that levels the playing field. Yeah. And, and even though Mike or, no, no, Ed no. or Andrew no, didn't no, want to do I, this. Let me add on to that. That idea came from Paul, one of our CEOs of one of our companies. And he wrote, he ran a remote guy named Paul Ann Leberge. Uh, it was a company called iCompass, ended up selling successful exit. Um, he was the one, he's my, my generation. We were sitting down at dinner and talking about how he had taken his company from where it was and selling it and make, making a bunch of money. And he said that was one of his biggest successes. The company was based in a small town in British Columbia called Kamloops, which is not exactly a, a software hotbed. And so he had people all over the place. And yeah. he said that was one of the biggest biggest, most important things he ever did was put everybody, even if they're in the same office, everybody has to sit in there uh, sit in their offices and work on Zoom collaboratively, side yeah. by side, because, because for that exact reason. And it's so counterintuitive. You think, wow, like, I, I'm not going to be able to see the person face to face, even though they're 12 yards away. They're sitting on staring at their computer and I'm staring at my computer. But the fact of the matter is, for the greater whole, which is the entire team, those people who aren't in that boot room get cut out. So that was yeah. a very, very fundamental decision. And it was a real mind shift for me and for you know others in the office. Of like, wait a second, I have to sit and stare at my computer. But it's massively important. I love that story. I actually hadn't heard anyone doing that. And I think it's like such a phenomenal recommendation. Give us another yeah. one. 
What's another example of like implementing systems, giving everyone on the same page or something like? Well, okay, I'll tell you what, this is, Mark's going to laugh about this one too. This is the Microsoft Google Sheets debate. Um, (laughs) So I'm I'm a CPA um, and we have all kinds of CFAs on our team. And I, you know, graduated university in 1990 and I built like solid 15 years of high-end Microsoft Excel experience. And problem with Microsoft Excel for most of our company's history was that it lives on your hard drive and nobody can access it. And so all those yeah. great shortcuts and I'm a super whiz and I can fly through Microsoft Excel and suddenly they're saying, well, you got to use Google Sheets. Ugh. It doesn't work the same way. Yeah. I don't know all the shortcuts. It, it, you know, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't have this function. It doesn't have that function, which are super obscure level functions. Um, so they was just kicking and screaming. They got me over to Google Sheets. And finally, I started using Google Sheets and I wouldn't go back. Collaborate. I mean, the collaboration of it. So having one spreadsheet in a place that everybody can work on, even at the same time where we're all sort of poking away at it, um, that that's uh, that's a truly powerful tool. And so I dumped it and I moved on and I gave up my, my uh, expert user badge for Microsoft Excel. Mike, what's going through your head in this? Like CPA, like very analytical. Here you are running like what would be, you know, perceived as a very innovative solution. You've got this, you know, team of old generations and they're like, do it this way. And and you don't want to. And what is kind of that internal coaching or story that you have going on in your head that gets you over the chasm? Well, I think, look, we should recognize uh, Greg Smith, who was my co-founder of this business uh, of my generation. Um, And he was um, an individual. Unfortunately, he recently passed away from ALS and we're very sad to have Mm. lost him, but he to hear that Mark had you know spoken so highly of him. Yeah, he he was really amazing. He was a really amazing guy, and he was more on the software side and on the technical side. Um, and I was the, he was sort of the engineer and the software guy, and I was the uh, and the sort of financial side individual on the collaborative team. And so he browbeat me into um, uh, taking on these tools and using them from a very early period. After two years. There is no cognitive dissonance around, you know, adopting and using these tools. Having seen what we can do, having seen, um, you know, frankly, how much easier my life is when everybody else can do everything instead of me doing it, um, that that it, it hasn't been that much of a transition. Those first two years were probably pretty rough and there was a lot of hard conversations over what we should or shouldn't do and how we should adopt. But since then, you know, it's been all systems go in terms of adopting every single tool we can get. Yeah, it definitely wasn't easy. There, there was a lot of yelling. There was a lot, a lot of you know, and not every decision, you know, and not every decision that uh, we wanted to go necessarily got done. There were a lot of ideas that we had that were bad ideas that we were reversed and went backwards on and stuff. But um, you know, where we're at now, innovation is the source, and I'm I'm very happy with what we've achieved. And it's just a, it's like a big stone rolling downhill. It's just gathering speed as far as we're concerned. Yeah. So when you're making that decision, let's just say someone, Mark, comes up with, this is what we should all be moving to. What does that look like structurally within your company? Can you give us like, just like, a, how would you do that? How do you have that discussion? Um, well, lots of meetings. Um, so it starts with a high level plan of um, how much 
you know, what size are we now? What size do we are we going to likely be in 12 months? How many dollars of loans are we planning on originating? What are kinds of our returns of our are we able to get in the marketplace and what returns can we offer our investors? And that provides a framework. That's the strategy framework. And then we build down into the operational plans where we say, okay, so if we're going to do that, you know, for example, we want to increase the dollar value of loans. We're going to originate uh, over last year by 50 or 75%. Okay, what do we need to do to do that? And so that's where Mark comes in and we say, okay, you need to deliver uh, leads uh, that are 50 to 75% more in dollar value than they were last year. How are you going to do that? What tools are you going to use? What platforms? Uh, what channels? And then it works all the way down through the system. So for the, you know, the origination, the term sheet, the underwriting, and then into the portfolio management, what tools are we going to need? And, and the whole thing starts with, don't, don't tell me we're going to add people just to do that. Like, don't go add 50% more people yeah. mm-hmm. um, because that's not what we're here for. We're here to, we're here to create a system that can, you know, do more and more and more with the same, the same, the same using technology. That's what we do. So, so that is, um, that's a big part of the game is trying to figure out what tools to add this year so that we can grow by 50 or 75%. Without adding headcount. Yeah. And, 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 and that all is inspired by, um, you know, those conversations that we're having and then deciding, okay, well, what, what can we test? Hmm. What can we, what can we try? And where have we seen uh, any evidence that those things are working? Right. So we don't just go spend, we don't just go to a new tool provider and be like, okay, this tool's $20,000. Let's go sign up for that and see if it works. Um, just like our underwriting platform that we've built, the marketing platform is the same thing. It's let's do it manually. Let's figure out what works. And then if we figured out what works, let's build something that can save a lot of time or that we can create scale with it. So I I think, you know, it's really interesting because it goes back to the conversation I had, which is when I was at a recent conference and the workshop that I was leading on innovation is innovation isn't just some cool thing, right? It's really all it is, is finding a better, cheaper, faster way to do something and to solve a problem differently. And really, I think that's what Tamaya Capital represents, right? Solving a problem differently. It's definitely what the new school represents. When there isn't a map out there, but you see the need, finding that way and then leveraging, in your case, technology to really find that space to serve people, to give people these founders loans that they hadn't ever had access to before without giving away chunks of their company. And so to wrap it all up, I'd love for you just to talk a little bit more about, you know, I'm hearing a lot more about private capital being more accessible and this being an asset class that is coming into the market. It's getting like a little bit of like, would you say trendiness or is it popularity? Is it intrigue? Like what, what is around that? I think it's two macro trends coming together uh, to create a tsunami wave, perhaps. I don't know if that's the right, the right um, metaphor. But um, so we start the business uh, 2015. There are other technology lenders that are out there who are also doing their thing. Um, and uh, really, the focus at that point is um, go find companies that are willing to pay and we're going to help them create value for their own businesses in a better way than they've been getting it and deliver return. But the end 
um, investor in those scenarios were always like angel investors or in small institutions. And um, so that system built up over a couple of years and we built and proved and built, proved, built, proved and started to deliver some returns and got better at it. And we drove down the cost of doing what we do. And then at the same time, of course, uh, most of the viewers on this will know that, um, you know, the public market um, investment advisory business is coming under pressure for fees coming down and, uh, you know, just the proliferation of um, ETFs and, um, you know, a whole bunch of sort of pressure on their side where they're looking for new product to be able to offer uh, yield or other kinds of returns to their investors. And so you take those two macro trends and somewhere in the last five or six years, those two kind of converged and, and became one trend where uh, we're finding um, we are able now to provide with the kind of regulatory support that's necessary, the ability to go out to advisors and retail investors and offer them the ability to partake in giving a private loan to a private company and to do that through registered accounts. That is uh, one big basket of innovation that happened on the back end so that we could now take the yield that we're making and pass it all the way through to an investor broker to a brokerage account. Um, the second uh, trend was that, um, you know, that kind of yield we're able to deliver is well in an excess of anything else that's sort of out there in that same risk basket. Um, so now investment advisors are able to partake and participate in these loan pools and to get a good vision, which is one of the critical improvements in the system, is they're able to see the underlying basket of loans and they're able to know what they're invested in and to know how those loans are performing. And they get that kind of data through the technological innovations that we've created. Um, and they're able to get yields that they can offer to their customers, 8, 9, 10% that um, are typically uh, well in excess of sort of what, what other kind of private uh, options might be out there. And, you know, the investors are happy to be getting the yield. The advisors are happy to be offering the new product um, and they're able to get them, a, you know, a portion of their portfolio at a sort of certain risk level that, really works out on a, on a diversified basis across that portfolio return. So those two trends of the improvement in what we're able to do and offer and the, and the transparency and the return with, you know, the market at the same time, the advisor market looking for new, new, uh, new product to try and battle what's going on inside the space. Those two things coming together, I think, are very uh, powerful forces. Mark and Mike, thank you for coming on to the new school. We always close out all our guests and we ask, what does the new school mean to each of you? Mark, you go first. Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> so the new school means that we're not just accepting uh, what the status quo is, right? And <clears throat> what I find fascinating from my history is I was in the startup space. I was in the uh, SaaS, B2B SaaS business for the last 12, 14 years. And coming into the lending space, you know, I thought it was very simple, straightforward, and easy because it's kind of the same. It's been the same thing. But I didn't know enough about it. And so now that I'm working with Tamaya and the, the people and the team that we've grown, we're all looking at this, this business and going, 
how, how do we act like the entrepreneurs we're serving? The entrepreneurs that we're serving are constantly going out and trying to find new ways to build their business. And we're trying to provide them capital in a way uh, that is accessible, uh, efficient, um, and not old school. Uh, so we're, we're, we're trying to provide that product to them uh, in a way that serves them best. Yeah. So, so I used to be a venture capital guy. I was venture capital for 10 years for a, for a, like a $300 million venture capital fund. And I still have all kinds of friends and business colleagues in that business. Um, and I look at how they're doing this business and they're doing this business the same way they were doing it in 1991. Uh, the new school to me is uh, looking at the difference between how us and companies like us are doing making investments, originating, finding, managing, and comparing it to how the people who resist change, who are afraid of new tools, who are um, just just sort of stay in the course until they retire, that to me is the difference between uh, old and new school and uh, the quality of my life, the quality of my customers' lives, the, cost, the quality of my investors' lives uh, is made measurably better by the fact that we are constantly trying to innovate on every single front. And um, that, to me, is what the new school is about. Thank you both for coming on. Where can people find you? So our website, www.tamayacapital.com, is, is a great place. Uh, LinkedIn, please follow us on LinkedIn. We put a lot of content up on LinkedIn. We have all kinds of sometimes controversial uh, blog posts about how things are done. And we're happy to engage on that front. Uh, those are two great places. Mark, anywhere else? Yeah. As you said, LinkedIn is going to be the best spot. Um, uh, you can search for Tamaya Capital uh, or you can search for uh, either of us. So um, we, we come up right away. So yeah, we'll have your, your, your LinkedIn bios in our show notes. So you can click into that again. Mark and Mike, thank you for coming on to the new school. Such Thanks, a pleasure. Thanks, Candace. That was great. Thank you very much. 